All right, and welcome to the Rory's Nitro podcast, where we rip up the TV rates and buy ratings and declare our own winners in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, and today's episode, episode three, takes us back to January 24, 1988. It's NWA's Bunkhouse Stampede up against the WWF's Royal Rumble. As some background for the time uh, in wrestling, the WWF champion at the time was Hulk Hogan, who was in the midst of his big program with Andre the Giant, this being nearly a year after their WrestleMania 3 encounter and about a month before their Saturday night's main event uh, clash with all the controversy with the Hepners. The Honky Tonk Man was in the middle of his long intercontinental title reign and strike force Tito Santana and Rick Martel were the tag team champions. Over on the NWA side, I think there was quite a lot more going on. Ric Flair was holding the heavyweight title, Dusty Rhodes the US title, and Nikita Koloff the TV title. I couldn't find out who the tag team champions were at the time, my apologies. Other than the championships, the NWA had recently purchased Bill Watts UWF, which by many in the industry was considered to be a colossal mistake. Many consider the fact that the UWF was in debt and was possibly about to go under, meaning that the NWA simply could have cherry-picked off the talent and not paid the bills and taken over the debt. Um, The Oklahoma oil recession had kicked in and people in the Oklahoma area, which is one of the main bases for the UWF, were simply unable to afford to go to the shows, therefore resulting in them taking on some heavy losses. Another issue with the purchase of the company was whilst they gained some of the stars, namely JR, Jim Ross, Sting, Dr. Death, Steve Williams and Rick Steiner, they didn't acquire all of the biggest stars, losing out Ted DiBiase and Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who both jumped to the WWF. They had issues with this show itself as well, the NWA, um, where the pay-per-view company said that the pay-per-view was set to start at 6 o'clock, the ticket said it was set to start at 8 o'clock, and the show itself actually started at 7 o'clock, upsetting quite a few fans. Lastly, we go to the reason why the two companies had a show on the same day. They had run opposite each other on pay-per-view before, way back in November of 1987, when Vince McMahon ran the Survivor Series opposite Starcade. Uh, he pulled a little bit of a power play, and it hurt Starcade financially. He told a lot of pay-per-view providers that he wouldn't allow his show to be shown with another show within 24 hours of it, meaning a lot of the pay-per-view companies cancelled Starcade after they'd already attempted to move into the afternoon and avoid the head-to-head battle. To retaliate to this, when Vince was running WrestleMania 4, the NWA ran a free Clash of the Champions on TV and was considered to be the better show with WrestleMania 4 dragging uh, the tournament, just provided too many matches for the night. And now we come to Vince McMahon's revenge. Never one to let someone get one over on him. NWA were running their bunkhouse stampede, invading WWF territory in New York, and Vince ran the first ever Royal Rumble free to air opposite and killed the buy rate. I don't have the exact buy rate figure for what the bunkhouse stampede did, um, but it is said to have taken quite a hit, and the Royal Rumble drew an astounding 8.2 TV rating, making it a roaring success. Lastly, the uh, main events seemed to compete with each other, or the spiritual main event of the Royal Rumble, it wasn't actually the last match, but with the Bunkhouse Stampede essentially being a battle royal inside a cage, I find it a little ironic that Vince decided to air the first ever Royal Rumble opposite this, giving the viewers a choice of a free battle royal type event. Without any further ado, I've stolen the coin from Jack Tunney, I've flipped it myself, and we've come up with the Bunkhouse Stampede first, let's get to it.
Stampede took place in the Nassau Coliseum, making this the first episode of a show that features an arena I've been to. Uh, on my honeymoon in 2014, I took in a New York Islanders game in the Nassau Coliseum, enjoying it in front of a much larger crowd than this show, which only drew 6,000 people. Um, in a big arena like that, it wasn't a good look. The live crowd were treated to a dark match of Sting and Jimmy Garvin up against the Sheep Herders, who would later on become the Bushwhackers in the WWF. And I'm not too sad not to have seen that. The Bushwhackers are one of those gimmicks that I just never could get my head around. I understand the Sheep Herders were a little bit more violent and edgy in the NWA, but there's no coming back from it for me. We open with some cheesy 80s rock music and a bit of a light show for the entrance of Nikita Koloff. Uh, the pay-per-view comes open with Nikita walking to the ring, no introduction, no package, found that a little bit strange, but when it gets to the ring, we do cut to the commentary team of Jim Ross and Bob Cottle, this is going to be interesting, uh, they mention all the titles on the line and give a quick hype up for the show, uh, then we go back to the ring and we see that Nikita's opponent is Bobby Eaton of the Midnight Express, who's already in the ring for the jobber entrance, uh, ring introductions come old school boxing style or currently like the title matches in NXT, and this is what I noticed, Tony Schiavone is the ring announcer, that's going to be a treat. This match is for the television title held by Nikita Koloff. Uh, the match starts out with some classic Jim Cornette stalling, uh, basically stopping the match really getting underway. This goes on for a couple of minutes, and we really have had no action whatsoever. Then, two or three minutes in, we go to a really long tie-up spot. This is a really slow start. Uh, they're pretty much still tying up and jockeying for position when Tony Schiavone informs us we've had five minutes down, 15 to go. This is going to be slow. It's at this point that I notice that the crowd is very dark, very poorly lit. Uh, if you struggle hard enough, you can see one, maybe two rows, but beyond that, it's pitch black. You cannot see anything at all. You heard me right when I said we were at the five minute mark and no, I haven't called a move as of yet. It's at this point in the show now where I press a little button on my PlayStation and check how far into the show we are. Eight minutes and we've not seen a move and I can't help but write on the book here, fuck, I regret doing this podcast. We do, just after I write that, manage to get a little bit of action, ending with a big slam by Koloff. Um, as they lock back up, I see Cornette seems to be mic'd, oh, that's the note I wrote. I can hear him quite clearly all through the match. The match does slow down again. Um, we do get Bobby Eaton throwing Koloff into a ring post on the outside, which is about the most exciting thing that's happened so far. And a funny line by JR that Cornette is waddling around the ring. Pot calling the kettle black, maybe, but it still made me laugh. Ten minutes gone, Tony Schiavone informs us. Uh, and at this point, the only thing I notice is how wide the ringside area is. It's about twice the width from ring to barricade that it normally is. And Bobby Eaton goes to a hammerlock. I'm getting pretty bored by this point, so I pick up my phone and tweet Virgil, sending him a link to the podcast and asking him if he'll retweet me, but he probably won't because I do send him hate on a regular basis. The uh, basis of this hatred stems back to him refusing to give my good friend Mark an autograph as a child, and ever since I heard that story, I've harassed him since. Crowd do get all over Jim Cornette with a big Jim Cornette sucks chant, the most entertaining thing that's happened so far. Eaton gets a big knee and a decent missile dropkick, and we start to see some moves. Unfortunately, he follows them up by going back to the hammerlock. Cornette is making me laugh at ringside. As I said, I can hear him clearly, and he tells Koloff, you're nothing but a jerk. You're a goof. You're an idiot. 
good vocabulary. I wish Vince Russo was in there so I could hear what he'd say to him. We actually get to the 15-minute point of the mark. Tony Shivani informs us again, and we're back in a hammerlock. This is really painful. We then get countdowns from there. We're told there's four minutes left. We're in a hammerlock. There's three minutes left. We're in a hammerlock. And at this point, I write down, I've never seen a 10-minute hammerlock in my life. We do get out of the hammerlock, and Eaton hits a huge DDT. But holy fucking shit, he puts on another hammerlock. My head is in my hands. I'm about to cry. We get the one minute countdown, the 45 second warning, and then Koloff is back up. There's 30 seconds, we hear the, the timekeeper tell us, and the idiot goes up for a 10 punch spot in the corner. I just don't understand this at all. 15 seconds left, 10 seconds left, and we hit the Russian sickle, which is essentially a big clothesline, but I think it was his finisher. Um, Tony counts us down from five as he goes in for the pin. Uh, obviously, the time runs out. Jim Cornette jumps in after the match and distracts Koloff, so Eaton can attack him with the racket. Out comes his tag team partner, Stan Lane, to help, and they double team up on Koloff for a little bit. After the match, we go back to the commentators, and Bob Cottle has the nerve to say, what a great match, everything we said it would be. I'm telling you, Bob, if you told me it was going to be a 20-minute hammerlock, I would have reviewed another show. Thanks for nothing. Up next, we have a match where I'm... Little bit nervous, but hopeful that it's going to be a little bit better than the one we just saw. It's Barry Windham defending his UWF Western States Championship up against Larry Zabisco. We have some more horrible music, and at this point in the podcast, I'm wondering whether or not it was dubbed in on the network or if this was really the horrible music they chose on the night. Larry Zabisco comes out first with Baby Doll. Barry Windham makes his introduction second, and Tony Schiavone informs us that this one has a 30 minute time limit, but please, God, do not let it go 30 minutes. They argue a little bit at the start before the pace picks up. Uh, Wyndham manages to hit a couple of good shoulders and a hip toss before going back to the mat. Larry Zabisco's on the mat complaining of a hair pull. We then get some wrestling logic as Zabisco misses a drop kick and sells it um, as though he's been hurt, even though he landed the same way, which we've talked about before. And he goes out to hang on the ropes and try and avoid any contact, looking a little bit like a miniature Andre the Giant hanging out on the ropes. Larry Zabisco then puts on a hammerlock, and I seriously consider what I'm doing with my life at this point. Shivani tells us there's five minutes gone, 25 minutes to go. I can just hope that this doesn't last that long. I know I'm sounding like a little bit of a broken record, but this was truly painful. He goes for a spin kick, but Barry Windham catches it, and... Zabisco begs off a little bit. His voice, his mannerisms, they were always quite good, so that was enjoyable. He takes a powder um, and gets out on the outside. He comes back in the ring, and we go to a bit of a sequence where we do one move and then take a hold, repeating this a few times. It's a little bit of a different pacing to a match than I'm used to. It wasn't bad, but it did take me out of the zone a little bit. The camera is staying nice and close on them, probably to hide the empty seats. Uh, Wyndham with a big slam and then misses a senton. Zabisco starts to work the leg, um, but Wyndham does work out hitting a back suplex before Zabisco then fires back with a drop toe hold and going to a leg lock. The commentators put over the fact that his leg was injured and he took the match anyway. The four horsemen did the damage. I wish they'd tell us these things before the match and help hype the story or better yet show a replay. We get a good sequence of moves from Wyndham with a suplex and a gut wrench suplex before going into a sleeper. 
uh, and then not too long after that, the action heads to the outside and Wyndham is again sent into the ring post. It's this time that I notice that there's wooden steps at ringside. Very, very old school. Tony Schiavone informs us 15 minutes are gone, 15 minutes are left, and the pace picks up a little bit again, which is good. Good back and forth, and it's turning into a decent match here. I'm starting to enjoy it a little bit as it wins me over. The commentary is turning me off, though. It's just two guys doing play-by-play -play in turns. There's no banter, no back and forth, and really, considering they're both play-by-play -play guys, they're not getting the story over all that well either. Back in the ring, we get a ref bump, and Wyndham stupidly goes for the pin, even though he saw the referee get knocked out. Um, somewhere in there, Zabisco gets a hold of Baby Doll's shoe, nails Wyndham with it, the referee comes to to count the three, and we've got a new champion. Not a bad match, uh, certainly much better than the first one, nothing to write home about, but when you've sat through 20 minutes of a hammerlock, any kind of action is going to give you a smile. The next match up is World Heavyweight Champion Ric Flair defending against Road Warrior Hawk. Um, I notice we skip straight to the two of them in the ring, and a banner comes along the bottom of the screen saying this is being presented in its most complete form due to production technical difficulties in the original broadcast. Uh, for those of you keeping score with the podcast and know the five categories, presentation slash production production is one of those five so i think they can expect to be marked down at the end of this as the action gets underway i notice jj dylan is at ringside managing rick flair hawk no sells some big chops early on and he is looking really jacked he looks like an absolute monster i remember the legion of doom from their early 90s entrance into the wwf really loved them but i don't remember him being this huge we see a big shoulder block off the ropes from hawk and a huge press slam and the crowd are really getting into it bob coddle however is not he's taking me out of it completely Another press slam from Hawk, and he's really in the ascendancy here. As Flair's selling like death on the floor, I notice the referee's legs, and we get a bit of a fashion faux pas. He's wearing black pants and black shoes with white socks. JR would have had a field day with Stephen Richards for this same thing many years later. Flair's begging off on the floor. Hawk um, takes him to the corner and performs the Steve Austin-style mud hole stomp. Quite cool as he's doing this. I notice ringside Paul Ellering is there as well, managing Hawk. Uh, we're only three or four minutes in, and Flair's really selling for all his life. He's making Hawk look like a million bucks. Hawk hits a really nice standing drop kick, followed by a jumping fist drop, and then a really huge beal from the corner where he throws him across the ring, and an even bigger vertical suplex. He's really bringing the power offense here and doing a good job. We're five minutes in, 55 minutes remaining. Somehow I don't think this one's going to go the distance, but it has been enjoyable for five minutes at least. We go to a big bear hug from Hawk. Um, he then somehow we transition out of it, and he's no-selling some more chops before putting on a huge shoulder block. Ric Flair does, however, get himself back into the game with a big eye rag, classic Ric Flair. Gets him to the outside and throws him into the barricade, which Hawk again no-sells. Um, it's kind of hurting Flair's credibility a little bit here that Hawk is no-selling everything, but it is making him look like a monster at least. Running out of ideas, Flair goes to a low blow on the outside, and he does manage to get on the offense for a little bit before Hawk fires back in the ring with a big neck breaker, another move he did that I always like the look of. Um, Flair manages to go back to the leg, a little bit of back and forth here. He gets on the leg, um, starts to punish it, trash talks a lot. He and the crowd enjoy wooing with each other. Uh, and Flair hits a good back suplex and then goes back to the knee. Puts the figure four on pretty sharply here. Um, and in some another example of wrestling logic, he's leaning back on the leg but reaching up to pull on the rope, somehow giving him more leverage. Uh, law of physics would probably disagree with that, but it's accepted in wrestling. He has to figure four on for a good while before Hawk manages to flip him over and reverse the pressure, as JR tells us, and you quite audibly hear Flair scream out, Jesus Christ, in pain. Um, 
As he gets out of that, he manages to go up to the top rope, but if you've ever seen a Ric Flair match, you know what comes next. Hawk catches him and tosses him across the ring. Off an Irish whip spot, Hawk comes in looking for a clothesline on Flair, manages to hit Flair, but also goes through him and takes the referee out. Uh, then clotheslines Flair over the top rope with the referee down. Back inside the ring, he hits a big power slam and a superplex, but there's no referee to count the fall. In comes JJ Dillon with a chair, sensing the danger, hits Hawk with a chair. Um, Hawk grabs a hold of JJ and Flair gets the chair, nails him as the referee comes back too, but Hawk kicks out at two. Flair puts on a big back suplex, which Hawk no-sells again. A 10-punch count in the corner, uh, but then Flair just picks up the chair and uses it in front of the referee for the DQ. Little bit of a flat finish, but they couldn't really put Flair over Hawk, who was being booked like a monster, and they weren't going to give Road Warrior Hawk the world title, so they had to do what they had to do. Overall, a pretty enjoyable match, thanks mostly to Ric Flair bumping like a boss for Hawk and making him look really good in the process. From there, we see the guys start to build the cage for the bunkhouse stampede. The announcers tell us that the American Dream has already won it twice. And strangely, in the middle of the show, we go to credits. Um, never seen this before or since, so it was a bit of an interesting development. Uh, and we see some replays from earlier on in the night, just trying to buy some time for the guys to get the cage up for the stampede match. The Bunkhouse Stampede is an eight-man match inside a steel cage. The eight men involved are Dusty Rhodes, Arn Anderson, The Barbarian, Tully Blanchard, Ivan Koloff, Lex Luger, Animal, and The Warlord. The way this works is essentially it's a battle royal inside a cage, so you've got to either throw them out through the door or over the top. Kind of the opposite of a normal cage match where the... the Aim is to escape over the top or through the door. This time it's to get your opponent over the top or through the door. With that, Bob Cottle does his best Porky Pig impersonation and gives us a let's go, fans. The same cheesy music plays as all the guys come out one by one, but not too far apart. Similar to the Battle Royal entrances they do these days. Um, they're all in, they're in street clothes, the cage is locked, and it's time for a brawl. The announcers tell us early on that there were qualifiers for this, but I don't believe they were one match to win and you're in, because they tell us Hawk won the most of the qualifiers, and Dusty Rhodes entered via the wild card. We're also told that the winner will receive a trophy and $500,000. Uh, the risk of the cage is brought into play early on, as Bob Cottle says to us, the cage is at least 10 feet and the ring's already 4 feet, so that's 14 feet, and when you fall off, you don't land on feathers. There's lots of brawling early on, not a lot of wrestling, so to speak. Um, and strangely enough, there's lots of brawling on the top rope where there's two or three guys stood on the rope and brawling. I just don't understand if the purpose of the match is to avoid being thrown over the cage. Why are so many people willingly climbing to the top rope so early? I could never see Vince running with this kind of match. It's one of them things. I know a lot of people uh, would like to see the WWF bring in war games, but I don't hear too many people offering uh, or asking for the bunkhouse stampede to be brought in. Uh, amongst all the brawling, Luger fires up and gets some shots off on a few different people, and we see Dusty Rhodes whipping others with his leather belt. Um, not too far into the match, I notice Animal's busted open, Ivan Koloff's busted open, Arn Anderson's busted open, and Lex Luger appears to be wearing my wife's gym pants. There's a lot going on in the match, but it's mostly brawling, uh, similar to when the Royal Rumble gets a little bit too congested. JR really says it best, where he says, we've seen headbutts, we've seen fists, but we've not really seen any wrestling yet. Ivan Koloff is the first man eliminated as Animal somehow gets him up and over the cage. Um, after that, Animal and the Warlord are fighting at the gate and somehow they both end up on the floor. Lex Luger back in the ring puts a big slam on Tully Blanchard and sends him up into the rack before Arn comes and makes the save. And it becomes Arn and Tully up against Lex while the Barbarian and Dusty Rhodes trade blows. 
Arne and Tully try to get Lex out of the cage and in another stupid manoeuvre, Arne Anderson gets outside trying to pull him out. He's got both hands on Lex's tights trying to pull him, but if Lex goes, Arne goes with him, so I don't understand that at all. As it turns out, all three of them somehow fall out, leaving your final two in the match to be the Barbarian and Dusty Rhodes. Uh, and I think from here, the finish was really pretty predictable. The Barbarian does manage to keep some hope alive, taking over on Dusty and landing two really big headbutts off the top rope. Uh, but it doesn't last too much longer as they climb up. Dusty sort of gets Barb over the top, lands a couple of the bionic elbows, and Barbarian falls to the floor, making Dusty Rhodes the third-time winner of the Bunkhouse Stampede match. He's presented a big bronze trophy, and we're told that he's going to be given $500,000. The match itself was quite long without anything really happening, very few wrestling moves or spots, and once the eliminations started coming, there wasn't a lot of drama to the match either. After that, we don't see much else. JR and Bob Cottle run down the results, and that's pretty much it for the show. wrestling as long as I have you'll recognize that music as the Royal Rumble entrance song so we go straight to the 1988 Royal Rumble as mentioned before it drew an 8.2 TV rating uh, it was broadcast from Hamilton Ontario Canada in front of a monster 16,000 fans which is about three times what was watching the bunkhouse stampede back in New York we open the show the right way with Vince McMahon running down the card, the matches for the evening. Sadly, not in the form he would do the later Royal Rumble rundowns. And we go to ringside to see Vince and Jesse Ventura as the commentary team. Makes me happy after watching Bob Cottle and JR. First match of the night is Ravishing Rick Rude up against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Rude's already in the ring getting the jobber entrance and he doesn't appear to have any of his really cool airbrush tights on. I guess it's a little early for that. We're 10 seconds into the bout, and it's at this point I'm really thankful for Jesse Ventura. He just treated wrestling like a sport, and even though he was the heel, he made some sound arguments and could really add a bit of thought process to the matches, a little bit of complex complexity, which was good and enjoyable for me. Rude's on offense early in the match, but Ricky the Dragon Steamboat does manage to fight back. It's a much quicker start than the first match in the last pay-per-view. Whenever Rude gets the better of Steamer, he does go into some posing. Uh, sadly, pretty great tights. So there was no face to pull down and reveal. We've got a test of strength early on, and then after that, Steamboat transitions into working over the arm. There's a really good back and forth with some arm drags coming from Steamboat at the end of it, and then they trade some fists and chops before Steamboat goes back to his trusted arm drag. Rude takes over the offense with a little bit of punch kick, um, really just taking taking it to Steamboat, who does go back to the arm drag again, and he puts on a hammerlock, but thankfully it doesn't last too long, and it's a much nicer transition. While he's got the hammerlock on, I do notice how well lit the crowd is. This show looks at least five years newer than the Bunkhouse Stampede. If you just showed an outside of these two shows back-to-back, -back, they wouldn't think they were even from the same era. It is really night and day how big time this looks compared to how cheesy the Bunkhouse Stampede looked. Back on the end of the ring and Rude gets a knee to the kidney on Steamboat and then a big slam on the floor before really hamming it up with a gyration. 
As they're doing that, I notice the referee is Dave Hebner, and since Earl Hebner was ringside at the bunkhouse stampede, it's a bit of an interesting trivia note that the two Hebners were present at the same night, but in two different companies for two different shows. A camel clutch from Rick Rude ends with Steamboat getting him up for a huge electric chair drop before Rude manages to get back into control. They do trade the ascendancy back and forth a little bit before Steamboat goes into a sequence of several near falls a la WrestleMania 3, different pinning combinations, and the crowd eat it up. They're really into this. We have a big suplex from Steamboat, and then he goes up top for a crossbody block, but Rick Rude pulls Dave Hebner in front of him, who takes the brunt of the blow. The match seems to continue, and Rude gets Steamboat into a submission move as Hebner comes to and calls for the bell. Rude immediately thinks he's won, and so do the sound guys, because they play his music, and he starts to walk to the back celebrating, before Howard Finkel announces the disqualification finish and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat as the winner. As far as openers go, this is how you should open a pay-per-view. Two guys that are over, um, decent work rate, good moves, nothing too spectacular that the guys later on couldn't follow it, but warms the crowd up nicely for the rest of the night, and they're in the mood. From here we go... Uh, up to the interview area and we've got a weight bench set up. Jesse the Venture Jesse the Body Ventura, sorry, is with Mean Gene. Uh, and they're talking about the upcoming attempt at a world record for the bench press, which Dino Bravo will be attempting. The uh, world record they inform us is 705 pounds. Dino Bravo comes out with Frenchie Martin, and if you've never seen Frenchie Martin, he is this stereotypical comic book villain. Google him and have a look, it's quite funny. Um it's really a good idea to get Jesse the body to do the most of the talking here that they do, but it does make me ponder the thought. The idea behind a manager is normally to help a wrestler with promos, but since Frenchie Martin sucks on promos worse than Dino Bravo does, what exactly is the point of him? I guess it's just crowd heat playing the um, xenophobic nature of wrestling. They get really good heel heat by asking the crowd to remain silent so Dino Bravo can concentrate on the lift, and they start the lifting off at 450 pounds, which he does quite easily with several reps. They take the bars off and add some more, get themselves up to 505. He does that pretty nifty as well, before they add a few more bars and go for 555, which he does without too much trouble as well. Dino Bravo then gets up and he asks the crowd again really nicely if they wouldn't mind just keeping the noise down a little bit. Quite the polite chap. I'm not sure why they bother booing him in the first place. Bars come back on and they're up to 595. He does manage to get that out, but it's getting harder as he goes along. Next up, they go to 655. He gets one rep of this, but it is quite the struggle. Um, they then tell us they're going to up the weight straight to 715, a full two, 10 pounds over the record, but he he's had enough. The crowd are making too much noise. He gets up and walks out almost all the way to the backstage area before relenting and coming back to attempt his record. 715's on the bar. He goes to lift. He gets about halfway up, and he can't push it the rest of the way. Jesse puts both hands on the bar and helps him get it up. Uh, crowd not happy with this. Uh, Vince McMahon obviously not happy with this on commentary, doubting whether or not the record will stand. Good segment, though. Um, really good way to build, build heel heat for Dino Bravo, who they obviously had big plans for at this point. Next match, and we've got a very strange anomaly in the timeline of the World Wrestling Federation. A two out of three falls match for the ladies' tag team titles. Um, you won't see that very often at all. It's the Glamour Girls defending their titles with manager Jimmy Hart up against the Jumping Bomb Angels coming straight from Japan. Glamour Girls are in the ring for the jobber entrance, and they're not the prettiest two ladies I've ever seen. Uh, the risk of sounding sexist there. The Jumping Bomb Angels are coming to ringside, and they're wearing long brown robes, a la the Texas Tornado. He seems to be uh, all over this podcast, despite the fact that he's not actually appeared on an episode yet. 
Um, and Vince gets on Jesse's case about Dino Bravo cheating in the weightlift challenge. Good start early on as we see a double drop kick from the Bomb Angels uh, before one's missed and allows the Glamour Girls to take over with some really good hair-pulling flying mares. Um, they go for a pin-off one of them and one of the jumping Bob Angels... Bob Angels, God. Bomb Angels, I don't even know why any of you listen to this podcast with low quality <laughs> like that. Um, gets a really good uh, bridge out of the lateral press that pinned in a normal position and just bridges straight out of it. It looked really cool. Um, they go back on offense and they have a really nice rolling jump into a headbutt uh, before coming up with a weird suplex, kind of lifting for a pile driver, stalling for a while and then throwing a gut wrench. But now it's time for my favorite part of the show, the dick move of the week. Vince McMahon, despite obviously being the one that hires the wrestlers, informs us that he's just going to call the jumping bomb angels pink and red. You'll notice I've not been calling them by their first names either because it's never been announced. Um, he tells us he doesn't actually know what their first names are because he doesn't speak Japanese. Well, it's kind of your job, Vince. I'm not sure how you can write their paychecks to pink and red, so that will earn you this week's dick move of the week. Um, this is a really great start to the match, by the way. They're really going at it. The Bomb Angels put on a double figure four, so one on each of the Glamour Girls in the ring. Um, ringside going nuts is Jimmy Hart, who's wearing a shiny gold suit. He looks like a miniature gold dust. Um, we get a really cool powerbomb type maneuver. One of the Bomb Angels is holding onto the top ropes in the corner, and the Glamour Girl grabs her by the legs and reefs her out. Looks like a little bit like a sit-out powerbomb. We then get another favorite of mine, the Alley-Oop. Uh, shades of the Big Show many, many years in the past. And we get the one, two, three off it, something the Big Show never managed to do. Uh, so fall number one goes to the Glamour Girls. Vince, of course, brings us his favorite line. If you've ever heard Vince on commentary, what a maneuver. We're told that the two that finish the fall have to start the next fall. So as we go into the second fall, one of the Glamour Girls hits a big slam but misses with the splash and the Bomb Angels make the hot tag. We have a really cool double team spot. <laughs> Bit of a loop-de-loop of different reversals of the Irish whip before both the uh, Glamour Girls end up going down off clotheslines from each other. One of the Bomb Angels manages to get a really sloppy-looking sunset flip, and that's enough for the 1-2-3, so we're tied at 1-4 apiece. Back into the match, and we get a really cool-looking double underhook by one of the Glamour Girls, and they cheat in the corner a little bit with the double teams. Uh, the commentary is so much better in this match. They're really getting over how good this is. And for women's wrestling, especially in the 80s, this is fantastic. We get a bit of a weird move from one of the participants with a weird sort of German suplex type lift, but just dropped on their butt. Bit of a strange one. Uh, and then we get a cool slam and a knee off the top from one of the Bomb Angels before missing a senton. Uh, we go to the finishing sequence not too long after here with one of the Glamour Girls being knocked out of it and the two Bomb Angels getting up to a different top rope each and landing stereo missile drop kicks on the same opponent. Good enough for the 1-2-3 and new ladies tag team champions. I'm sure they'll go far with these belts. Howard Finkel announces the winner and that appears to be dubbed over which is really the first misstep of the night for production quality in the Royal Rumble. Um, not sure what happened on the night or if in fact it is dubbed over but to my not so keen ear it sounded like it was added well later on. After this match we're to go to the contract signing for the Saturday night's main event title match between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, the big rematch from WrestleMania 3 uh, that drew all those, all those fans into the Pontiac Silverdome, depending on who you believe and which version of history, somewhere between 76 and 93,000. 
We get a recap of that match showing the controversy where Andre supposedly got the 1-2-3 on Hogan. Having watched that match many times myself, it never really looked like a close call, but they need something to continue the rivalry, so I'm okay with that. We see uh, recaps of Ted DiBiase saying that he's going to buy the title, and then Hulk Hogan being interviewed at a later date and saying, hell no, he's not going to buy the title. Watching these recaps, it occurs to me that Ted DiBiase came into the Federation and was pretty much the complete package from day one. Um, I started watching wrestling 88, 89, uh, but was really only four or five years old, so I wasn't seeing everything week to week and, and never saw DiBiase's entrance into the Federation. But going back this far, it's apparent that he was brilliant from day one, which is really cool. He didn't take any time to get running at all. We see another uh, replay of an old interview where Andre is saying that he will deliver the belt to Ted DiBiase, and then we've got Ted DiBiase Andre the Giant and Virgil on their way to the ring and fuck Virgil Hogan comes out next to a monster pop they're really into it Jesse does question that though he says that uh, Real Americans the song they're playing and we're in Canada so what the hell are they cheering for good point DiBiase is in the ring in his shiny silver suit. Uh, if, like me, you did watch wrestling in the 80s and 90s, you'll love the different colours of DiBiase's suits. Um, I had the action figure, the Hasbro version, in the green and in the black. Don't think I ever got a silver one, but it is quite cool. As the camera focuses in the ring now, ready for the contract signing, I notice everybody's favourite Jack Tunney is here. When Jack Tunney showed up in my childhood, you knew something was about to go down, so this made it seem quite important. Uh, he does give us a bit of a weird line of let's get with it to Andre and Hulk. Um, sounds like he uh, belongs on a 6am uh, aerobic show trying to get the ladies motivated before work, but that's just me. Um, we sit down, Hogan sits down anyway at the table with Jack Tunney. He stalls for a little bit before having a quick look over and signing the contract. We are told on commentary that they'd looked over it all earlier so they knew what was in the contract. Um, Andre just refuses to sit down. He's stood on the ropes, rocking backwards and forwards on the rope, staring at Tunney, staring at Hogan, looking really menacing. Tunney tries to get him down a few times, but he's having none of it, and I don't think anyone's keen to put a foot down when it comes to Andre. He looks great. Eventually, he does sit down to try and uh, do the contract signing with Tunney and Hogan, but as he sits uh, at the wooden table in the little folding chair, I can't help picture that episode of The Simpsons where Homer's stuck in Lisa's desk at school. DiBiase on the microphone is stirring Hulk Hogan while Andre's stalling from signing the contract. Um, Andre takes an absolute ice age to pick up this contract. He's just staring a hole into Tunney and into Hogan really giving them the daggers it, it's really good it, it borders on going too long but the crowd are never lost so it's interesting he does eventually sign it before he signs it while he's reading it DiBiase comes over and says oh that's just a little extra bonus I put in as an incentive for you to win not sure if that was part of the story or if he's basically just trying to get Andre to hurry up because it was starting to drag a tiny bit after that he suggests that Andre gives Hogan something to remember him by slams Hogan's face into the table before flipping it up over under Hogan it's not one of your flimsy fold out tables that you see today it was quite thick so it did look pretty impressive really cool segment went a tiny bit too long but I'm not going to hold it against them because the crowd are into it uh, thinking back to Wrestlemania 3 and just the stare down the electricity these two can get in the ring and do next to nothing and the people will still flip out from there we go to the match that brought us all to the dance the Royal Rumble um, Jesse and Vince run down the rules and then we go to Howard Finkel who also runs down the rules Brett and Tito Santana are both in the ring at numbers one and two 
good choice for one and two, two guys that can work a little bit and keep the tempo going. They tell us Tito Santana's one half of the tag team champions, and we get started good back and forth. Um, no one really gains the ascendancy in the first two minutes, and entrance number three comes out, the natural Butch Reed. He goes after Tito Santana pretty much straight away, and Tito's getting double-teamed for the next couple of minutes. It doesn't really ease up after that because Jim the Anvil Neidhart comes out at number four, and we go to a triple-team. As this is going on, uh, when we get to the clock uh, entrance for number five, I notice they started at 13 on the screen. Uh, in later years, it'd be the classic 10 countdown with the crowd and the TV viewers at home as well, normally counting along if you're anything like the people in my house watching the Rumble. Number five is Jake the Snake Roberts, who comes in, saves Tito from the triple team before dumping the natural Butch Reed over the top rope. He's a real house of fire. Tito and the Snake go to work on the hearts, and Jake goes for the DDT on Brett, but the anvil nails him with a big clothesline, uh, and Brett nails a pile driver on Tito. The DDT was well over. The crowd were all over that, desperate for it. Out at number six is the King Harley Race, who is looking mega old. He's got the old Harry High Pants treatment well over his waistline, trying to cover his belly, hold it all in. Um, comes out to the ring looking every bit his age. I think this was right near the end of his run. Nothing of significance happens in this in two minutes. And then out at number seven is Jumping Jim Brunzel. He seems to trip on his way out of the gorilla position, either that or the cameraman trips. Go and watch it. I couldn't quite figure it out, but it, it was pretty interesting to look at. I go straight after Brett, and we get the usual Rumble false eliminations that we got in the early Rumbles, and the match starts to slow down a little bit with the ring filling up. Out at eight is Sam Houston, uh, the half-brother, I believe, of Jake the Snake Roberts, wearing an adorable little red bandana around his head. It's really cute. Uh, he comes in as the hearts toss out Tito Santana, and he gets stuck into the hearts a little bit. Dangerous Danny Davis, evil referees out at number nine. Um, and as he's coming out, we see that Jake the Snake has Harley Race rocking between the top and middle rope. Uh, the spot where he punches him, he falls back, but the ropes bring him back up and he comes into another punch. Uh, and it has slowed down yet again. Um, Sam Houston goes off on Danny Davis a little bit. Uh, nothing else of note happens before number 10 comes out and it is Boris Zukov. Uh, the network starts freezing on me, and with the rumble slowing down, it became a little bit of a drag here for me personally, um, but it's not really the fault of the match at the time. In a weird spot next, Don Morocco and Nikolai Volkov both run out sort of before the clock. Volkov's about one step behind Morocco, who had to have known he was there the whole time, and they get to the ring and they're stopped by the referees. We wait a few seconds and they let Morocco in, so he was obviously number 11. They hold back Nikolai Volkov as Zukov is tossed out right near him. I guess he was just not quite quick enough to help him out. They do let Nikolai in, assuring us that he was number 12, and he just jumped the gun a little bit, and Morocco tosses out Harley Race while this is all going on, and Sam Houston saves his brother. Out at number 13 is Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and the crowd go nuts. Um, he comes out, Race drops him with a punch, but then runs to the back, nothing really comes of it. A bit of a strange one, I guess they did have the King feud coming up, and the crowd are going mental with huge hoes. No punchline, please. He does eventually get in amongst the action, and not too long after he's in the ring, we see Outlaw Ron Bass come out at number 14. Sadly, he's not carrying a spur, and this pay-per-view has no Red X censorship. Uh, more glorious memories of my childhood. Nikolai Volkov dumps out jumping Jim Brunzel, and then at number 15 out comes B. Brian Blair, making it the second uh, time in the match where a tag team partner's just missed saving his partner. Um, B. Brian Blair is sporting a whopper moustache, really cool. Uh, at this point, I count there's 10 in the ring, and Jake's still going for the DDT, which is over like mental. 
Hillbilly Jim comes out next at number 16 and immediately dumps out the anvil and the brawl's going on all over the ring and Hacksaw appears to be the most over with the crowd still hoeing like crazy or as Gorilla Monsoon would say, they're yoing. Dino Bravo comes out at number 17 to so some really good heel heat. Obviously earlier in the night worked a treat. Um, Houston's working over um, Ron Bass, ends up on his shoulders but is dumped out in pretty short order. At number 18, out comes an old favourite of mine, the Ultimate Warrior. Um, sadly, no music in the early rumbles because the Warrior's entrance was always the best part of his act. Dino Bravo dumps out Brett, who was number one, and the commentators get over how well he did to last this long. At 19, we have OMG, the one-man gang. He looks cool as hell in his old black outfit. I don't remember him looking this cool. Uh, he does remind me of the old Legends of Wrestling PlayStation game as he comes out. And someone dumps B Prime Blair slightly off camera. Um, the one-man one man bang gang gets in and dumps Jake the Snake Roberts out as well. And number 20 comes out, JYD, the junkyard dog. Vince speculates that JYD or the one-man gang will win the match as Duggan dumps Volkoff over the top rope. And one man gang dumps Jim Neidhart over the top. Uh, Duggan manages to dump Dangerous Danny Davis as I struggle to read my own writing. And then Bravo on the one man gang dumped the Ultimate Warrior. Really disappointed. Um, it was probably pretty early in his run here, but I was expecting a little bit more from the Warrior. Um, on commentary, Jesse uh, speculates that he'd like to have seen Bruno Sammartino in here. Found this a little bit strange, but Vince does assure us that he thinks Bruno would have done quite well. Rumbass jumps dumps out the JYD, so one of Vince's picks are gone, and Morocco dumps out Outlaw Rumbass, bringing us to our final four of The Rock, Don Morocco, The One Man Gang, Dino Bravo, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Morocco is dumped with a sloppy double team from the heels, um, clothes lined over. The crowd are really into Hacksaw now, being the last babyface remaining. They go for the same spot on Hacksaw, but it is reversed, and Dino Bravo gets eliminated in the process. The one-man gang charges at Duggan, who ducks, and he's out of here, leaving Hacksaw Jim Duggan to win the first ever Royal Rumble. Crowd really into it seemed to be the right choice there. I think he or Jake were certainly the two crowd favourites in this one, so I can't complain. Hacksaw was never a favourite of mine, but they've definitely made a good decision here. After that, we get a replay, replay of the contract signing between Hulk and Andre, because Hulk's obviously ratings and this is TV. I uh, can't debate that. Craig DeGeorge is interviewing Hulk Hogan up at the podium. Not a name I've really heard of before. I have seen him on a couple of shows, but he obviously didn't last long if I didn't commit his name to memory and had to Google him for this show. Hogan talks about how he pressed Andre over his head at WrestleMania 3, showing that the delusions of grandeur when it comes to this match started really early. It's not a later thing in life when he started calling him 7, 8, 900 pounds. The highlight of the promo is when he tells us that Andre can't beat him because to do that he'd have to beat each and every single Hulkamaniac. From here we go to the last match of the evening. I struggle to call it the main event because really that's what the Royal Rumble was for. Oddly enough, it's another two out of three falls tag team match, this time pitting the Islanders Haku and Tama up against the Young Stallions, Jim Powers and Paul Roma. The Islanders are out first and I notice they're without Bobby the Brain Heenan and out come the Stallions to a reasonable pop and what sounds like a theme song sung by Jimmy Hart. Jim Powers get off to a decent start in this match, a reasonably quick opener, and Jesse Ventura assures us that Bobby Heenan is watching this via satellite from Barbados, courtesy of the million dollar man Ted DiBiase, who had bought 
Andre the Giant's contract from him, obviously for a big sum. Another interesting note from commentary, Vince tells Jesse that everything so far tonight has been exciting except for the bench press challenge, which he calls dull, says he nearly fell asleep, and that it was boring. Never heard anything like this out of Vince before, uh, certainly something you'd never hear a commentator say today, unless they were talking about Lance Storm, I guess. Haku and Roma end up in the ring, and the match is still going pretty quickly. Uh, we have a good near fall off a body press type, Luthez press type move. Um, before we are informed by Jesse that Tama is the high flyer of his team and Haku is the power man, whereas both of the Islanders are Sylvester Stallone look-alike wannabes. Islanders going back and forth with the quick tags before hitting a double headbutt on Roma. Uh, we end up with Haku and Powers back in the ring and they go to a double clothesline. This is where um, we have another interesting moment on commentary. Vince says to Jesse, have you seen the toes on Haku? He could hang upside down on the top rope with those toes, to which Jesse quite rightly replies, well, that's a bit racist. Roma hits a big clothesline, a drop kick, and a big back body drop before the Islanders get him back under control and throw him to the outside with one of him tossing him and the other one pulling the rope down. He seems to land awkwardly on his leg, which he sells quite a bit, and the referee counts to 10, giving the Islanders the first fall. We're going to a commercial break, uh, they inform us on the network, and when we come back, we're getting another replay of the Hulk Hogan contract segment, and then Ted DiBiossi at the interview booth giving a promo while in the background, you can quite clearly see the Islanders just chilling out in the ring, taking their time. Um, Andre blasts to George for interrupting him, and we can't understand a word Andre says, which is about the highlight of the segment. As we come back, the young stallions are walking back to ringside as though they'd left at the end of the first fall. Roma's got a little bandage on his leg. It doesn't look like much, but they obviously didn't have much time to sort it. Um, Powers obviously gets in here because the story is now that Roma's hurt and he's selling like death on the apron. He works over Haku uh, before Haku gets in a really good gut shot and they go to a double headbutt from the Islanders again. Tama comes in with a really big elbow before tagging back in Haku in short order. Um, at this point, Powers is in a lot of trouble and has to make the tag to Roma, whose leg is hurt. So he does, he makes a hot tag, but not too long after coming in, Haku kicks his leg out from his leg and then tags in Tama, who comes off the top rope with a huge splash to the leg before putting in a half crowd and getting the submission victory. Holy shit. Two straight falls for the heels, clean as a whistle, and that's a strange way to end a show. Um, I found it odd that they didn't end the show with the Royal Rumble, considering Hacksaw was going over, or a match that the babyfaces were going to win to send the crowd happy. That seems to be pretty standard WWF booking that they do that. I can only assume that with the time it was on network, that maybe the Rumble would have been seen by by more people by being on earlier, but I still found it a really odd end to the, to the show. They finish with another replay of the contract signing, because that's obviously the biggest story in the land right now, and we wrap up the 1988 Royal Rumble. So, as the listeners by now should be well aware, we grade the shows on five different categories, those five categories being match quality, uh, production slash presentation, the characters on the show, the storylines on the show, and the crowd heat. So without any further ado, let's have a look at the winning winners of each category and determine our overall winner. Match quality, I've gone with the WWF for this show. In my opinion, the Royal Rumble match itself, which was the main attraction for them, was slightly better than the Bunkhouse Stampede, which was the main attraction for the NWA. Um, 
you could debate that either way, and it's really not a strong win there. Um, the Royal Rumble had more people coming in and out and seemed with the clock and the timed uh, entrances and eliminations had more action. The Bunkhouse Stampede was certainly more violent and bloody, so if that's your preference, you might have gone the other way. The opener on the Royal Rumble, Steamboat and Rick Rude, was miles better than the opener on the Bunkhouse Stampede, which nearly made me choose something else to review. Um, particularly, uh, going in, I knew these two shows were two and two and a half hours, respectively, as opposed to the 45-minute Raw and Nitro I did for episode one and for episode so two, 20 minutes into that match, uh, or t- the 20 minute match that went the opener on the stampede made me regret this change massively. So that's a huge win for the WWF Rude and Steamboat. The ladies tag title match was quite good. Um, certainly better than any other ladies match you'll see pre Trish Stratus and Lita really for my money. Maybe Alundra Blaze had some good ones in there, but I'm a bit hazy on the mid nineties women's wrestling um, and the Stallions against the Islanders was okay. Nothing to write home about, but decent enough to keep the average up. Um, Flair and Hawk at the Stampede was probably the best match of the night for me. It was quite good. Can't complain about that. And Wyndham and Zabisco was okay. Nothing to write home about, but for me, the WWF just takes it because they didn't have any real stinkers on the show. There'll be no surprise as to who wins the production value category. Um, I talked about it earlier. We didn't even get the entrance for Hawk and Ric Flair. Um, they went to a really strange opening of the show when the pay-per-view started. It was a ring entrance. There was no talking. We got no recaps of any angles, nothing to build us up. Um, we got credits in the middle of the show. The crowd was poorly lit because there was obviously no one there. Um, overall, it felt really low rent and small time. It was like watching a filmed indie show. Um, the quality value would be comparable to the some of the old school house shows in, in the network that you can pick up and have a look at. Um, certainly nothing like what the WWF would put on pay-per-view. The Royal Rumble, on the other hand, had a massive crowd, well lit. They'd do those big sweeping shots up into the, the stands to show you how many people were there. It was slick. It opened the right way. We had good replays when needed, not of everything, but of enough. Um, the main angle certainly got a ton of coverage, and they showed us back footage as well. Um, but it was night and day. These two just were not comparable in that category. Characters was a little bit closer. Um, Ric Flair's obviously a great character, um, and there were some good characters in the NWA. Sadly, this show didn't highlight any of their characters. It was just straight to the ring into the match, and that let it down a little bit. Ted DiBiase in the WWF had a clear motive for what he was doing with his character. Andre, Hulk, they all had their motives. Um, and even in the ring, in the Rumble match itself, Jake the Snake's DDT had obviously been established as a big move because the crowd chanted DDT. Hacksaw's catchphrase was being chanted, so the characters were definitely more on show in the WWF. Crowd heat's another no-brainer. 16,000 up against an alleged 6,000. Um, you could hear the crowd all through the WWF show. Flair got a decent pop, and a couple of things woke the crowd up at the Bunkhouse Stampede, but there wasn't enough of them in too big of an arena, whereas in the WWF you could see there was a bunch of guys that were massively over the top of the pile, being Hogan, but DiBiase and Andre got big heat, Um, Jim Duggan got a massive pop, Jake the Snake got a massive pop, the crowd were far more into the Royal Rumble than they were the Bunkhouse Stampede. Storylines is a little bit trickier, um, because... Really, there were no storylines at the Bunkhouse Stampede that were given play. They did talk on commentary about 
Wyndham's leg being hurt by the four horsemen, but they didn't show us any of it, and they didn't have any interviews or anything that could let us know that. Um, the WWF really just had one storyline on the go, and it was Hogan and Andre, but considering it's the biggest match of all time at that point, and it set up one of the highest rated, if I think it might be the highest rated matches on TV the following month in Saturday night's main event, you can't argue that they, the storylines were on point there. So the WWF takes that category as well, marking episode three as the first time we've ever had a clean sweep. Um, if this was a boxing match, this would be well and truly a first round knockout. That'll do it for this week's show. I will just mention a couple of little things before we go. Firstly, apologies for any sound issues I'm having. The recording is still proving a little bit difficult for me, um, and I'm looking to sort out my hosting fees before investing in some equipment uh, to make the show sound a little better. We will get there, but it'll still be probably a few episodes away before we get to that. A big thank you to everyone that's followed or interacted with me on Twitter. I am still really looking for some feedback on how the show is going. I don't just want to be praised, although it does make you feel nice, so thank you very much. But any improvements uh, that can be made, anything that you don't like about the show, I'd love to hear. Um, obviously, if you tell me the host is an arsehole and you want him gone, it's probably not going to happen. You won't get blocked, though, because I'm desperate for fans and I need you to like me. Um, anything else you can pass on would be great. Um, the reviews, I've got five or six reviews on iTunes now, all five stars, which I'm loving. If you do like the show and you feel comfortable enough giving me a five-star review, that would be awesome. If you don't, um, that's okay too, but keep in mind the first five people that give me five-star reviews do get to pick a show, and considering all the ones that have given me reviews so far are pretty much members of my family, they won't be picking a show anytime soon. The first show, uh, once we get into the, the crowd picks, will be done by Mark Lennon, um, long-time friend of mine that I mentioned earlier in the show, left me an awesome review. Um, did insult my accent though, and all I can say is I hate it as much as you do. Living in Australia has its downfalls um, between picking up the accent and all the snakes and spiders around ready to kill you, the wide open spaces and the inability, inability for me to get to other countries quite easily. Um, but it's got its pros as well. We, we enjoy it over here. And lastly, again, just big shout-outs to the Raw Attitude podcast and the New Blood Rising podcast. Those guys have um, been quite complimentary and helpful in getting me started, and um, I'm quite sure the retweets and the, the passing on of goodwill from those guys is what's getting me the views I've gotten so far. SoundCloud tells me I've had nearly 70 people listen on SoundCloud. iTunes doesn't give me any information whatsoever, but for the first week, I'm really wrapped with that. So thank you to everyone involved. And with that, I'll say thank you and good night.